0: The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast.
1: Hey ThalPals, Pals, it's your fellow patient advocate, Nina Maria. I'm here with co-host Dr. Kevin Kuo, and you're listening to ThalPals, Pals, the Alpha Beta Revolution, Season 2.
2: Happy New Year, Nina Maria. How are you?
1: Happy New Year, Dr. Quo, and Happy New Year to all our Thal Pals out there. Welcome to another season of the Thal Pals podcast. My name is Nina Maria. I have beta thalassemia major. I'm a patient advocate and your new co-host. If my voice sounds familiar, that's because I was interviewed on this podcast in June of 2023. And I'm so glad to be back and on the other side of things. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Quo. So before we started recording, I had a question for you, which was, how should I address you? Do you like Dr. Kuo, Dr. K, Kevin? What's the answer to that one?
2: I'm happy with anything. In fact, Kevin is perfectly fine with me. For people who are not my patients, I tell them, they just call me Kevin, to me, When people address me as a doctor, it conveys a sort of a doctor-patient relationship, which is sacred, and to me, that's something different. And what I usually tell people is, just call me Kevin, because we're not in clinic right now. And you don't want to be in my clinic, because otherwise, you're just going to hear me yapping on.
1: (laughs) All right, good deal. Kevin, it is. Before we kick things off, I think we should absolutely take a moment to thank Larisse Levine for her amazing work on this podcast. Larisse, you're an incredible advocate and someone I personally look up to. Thank you for all your hard work here.
2: Thank you, Lloris.
1: So, Kevin, I want to know before we get started with this episode, what in this season, what are some of the highlights in your favorite parts of the podcast last season?
2: Mm, let's put it this way. Every episode is unique. Every episode has its own message. And I think each of them is so important that it's it's really difficult to choose. But of all the ones though, I would say one of them really stand out. And that's the one of the generations where there was Ralph and Ruja and you as well, Nina Maria. I don't know if you remember that one.
1: I absolutely remember that one.
2: (laughs) And to me, that one really strikes home on a few levels. One is that As we all know, thalassemia is an inherited blood disorder. It means that it passed from generations to generations. Second of all, having thalassemia is a life journey. And that's why having three generations of individuals impacted by thalassemia is so unique, but also speaks to the nature of thalassemia itself.
1: Absolutely. Recording that episode was an honor and a privilege to me just to be with those other generations and just to hear their stories. And it puts so much perspective. And like you said, just really speaks to this blood disorder and this community.
2: Nina Maria, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Because I learned about you, obviously, online during our interviews and generations. And then Offline, of course, when we have met on a few occasions, but maybe tell us and tell the audience as well.
1: Sure. So as I've mentioned, I have beta thalassemia major. I was diagnosed at about six months old. I'm transfusion dependent, so I get transfused about every four weeks. And growing up, I really didn't have anyone or know anyone that also had thalassemia. So now that I'm older and I've become an advocate, I've become really passionate about connecting with other patients, especially our younger thal pals out there who may be in a situation that I was in and don't know of anyone who has. So I'm just super grateful for this community and this podcast to be able to connect people, not only across the country, but across the globe. So I'm just excited. I'm excited to be here alongside all the listeners, just asking the questions that you guys want answered, learning and growing and connecting. I'm really excited and I just can't wait to get started. What do you say, Kevin?
2: Likewise, I am ready to go. And a corollary question to the first one is, you talked about moving into advocacy because you felt like you were alone and you want to connect with others who have thalassemia as well. Was there a moment in life that you decided, yes, I'm going to become a patient advocate or was this something gradual?
1: No, it was a very specific moment actually. So I was at one of my appointments to be transfused and my doctor had asked me if I would mind speaking to a younger patient. And I was like, absolutely, that sounds like a really cool idea. So I walked into their room and started speaking with this patient and his mother. And the questions that he had asked me were not questions about treatment, were not questions about how I felt. They were very simple questions like, can you drive? Do you live alone? Do you have a job? And in that moment, I realized that all that this kid wanted and wanted to know, and probably what a lot of other young patients out there want to know is, can I be normal? Can I be like all the other people that I see doing things? Can I accomplish my goals? And that was the moment where I was like, oh my gosh, we need more representation. We need to give these kids the opportunity to see that they can accomplish anything they want to. And that's why I got into patient advocacy. But I would love to get to know more about you as well.
2: I was born in Hong Kong. And when I was very young, I was diagnosed with a blood disorder, not severe as thalassemia, but there were certain medications and drugs I couldn't take. And the moment I remembered that was most vividly was my doctor giving a list of medications that I need to avoid to my parents and showed it to me as well. And I was probably six or seven at that time. And and he told me, you got to memorize this list because if you don't, if you take those medications, then you know, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have hemolysis. Meaning, you know, breakdown of the red cells and then you need an exchange transfusion and all those things. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like, like, you know, it's a eight and a half by 11 paper with like little 12 point aerial font on there. It's like, how am I supposed to remember all this? It's, you know, it felt daunting to me. It turns out that many of the stuff that were put on that list, many of the drugs actually don't have a lot of evidence. It turns out, as, as, as I continue to learn, and explore in this disease area. So I got pretty interested as to why I can't take this plethora of drugs. That's how I got interested in medicine. And then when I went into undergraduate, because what I have is intimately associated with the glycolytic pathway, the disease that I have. And so I began to be a major in biochemistry and then switch over to molecular biology and eventually ended up with molecular evolution. Because to me, molecular evolution is showing this dance of the molecules as they move through time and how selection pressure of the environment has changed our genes and our genome and defined the diseases that we have in the human population and of course in other species as well. Because if you think about it, Things like thalassemia, sickle cell disease, G6PD deficiency, pyruvic deficiency, all of these are hereditary or inherited blood disorders that were driven into existence by malaria. Think about the selection pressure that one disease can have. COVID has really up our society, hasn't it, in the past three years. But then our genome didn't change as, a, oh, maybe it did, who knows. But by and far, our genome didn't change as a result. But through the thousands, tens of thousands of years of evolution, as we continue as a species compete with malaria, these genetic mutations has arose and withstand the test of time and remain in the human population so that a good part of our population, those with the traits, can withstand the insult of malaria. And then beyond that, one example is how sickle cell disease, which you can think about as a cousin of thalassemia, the mutations itself, the sickle mutation itself evolved no less than five times independently across the world, where malaria exerts its greatest pressure. And so I graduated with a degree in molecular genetics and decided to go to medical school with the aim of doing hematology. So I did medical school, went to my internal medicine training and then hematology. And then afterwards, I went in then on to subspecialize in hemoglobinopathies or to study of the changes in the hemoglobin that results in the diseases that we know of, like sickle cell disease and thalassemias. And then I thought to myself at at that juncture in time, it's true and well that I can help people with blood disorders, but what about moving that needle? What about finding actual treatment solutions? Because when I graduated from my hematology residency, my fellowship in 2010 or so, at that time, all the treatments for thalassemias were supportive, meaning that it's just blood transfusions and iron chelation. It's a band-aid approach, isn't it, right. It doesn't really fix the underlying problem. And I thought to myself, how can I meaningfully contribute to the space so that I can start moving the needle of care? And I thought, what better way of doing that than to learn about how to do clinical trials, how to do clinical research? Because it is through clinical research that we will have breakthroughs that are necessary to start changing the course of how we manage thalassemias. So I did a master's in health research methodology, and then I was then afterwards appointed to the faculty at the University of Toronto. So that's my journey.
0: Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com.
1: It's really clear that you are very passionate about hematology and just, like you said, Furthering research and finding new solutions, which is really exciting and and hopeful as a patient to see that there is so much passion behind it. I think something that I'm wondering is what would you say to other doctors that are considering being hematologists or unsure? We need more doctors that not only specialize in hematology, but specialize in rare hemolytic blood disorders. So what would you say to aspiring doctors or what's your favorite part maybe about working in that specific field that might inspire others.
2: Before I get into the answer of your question, I completely agree with you that we need more doctors who specializes in the treatment of non-malignant diseases, particularly red blood cell disorders and thalassemias and sickle cell and so forth. Just to give you an example, I'm currently having a real conundrum because one of my patients is gonna be moving to a state where there is no thalassemia specialist. And I'm completely fretting about it right now. And I'm trying to help her with insurance, making sure that maybe she can get cross-stated coverage so that she can fly to a comprehensive care centers to get the necessary advice and so forth. So we absolutely need people in this space. I think one of the disadvantages that we had traditionally was because we were called benign hematology benign as if there's no great cause for concern if one were to have Thalassemia is a sickle cell. Yeah, it, it belongs to this category called benign hematology. As opposed to malignant hematology, things like leukemia, lymphoma, et cetera, right? Not to say that leukemias, lymphomas are not dangerous. I mean, certainly they are dangerous, but I think by calling them malignant hematology and by calling this field benign hematology, it gives a sense of less of an urgency and less of an impact that it deserves. The human impact, it doesn't do it justice.
1: These hematologies have been categorized as such. Yes, a lower risk than like a cancerous issue. It is still an issue. There is still urgency and dangers, right?
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. I think part of it has, initially at least, has to do with survival, meaning that if someone has leukemia and lymphoma, I mean, certainly it's quite deadly if you don't treat it. On the other hand, someone with non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia is They will live, but the quality of life is extremely poor. Their function is extremely poor. They have a whole host of comorbidities. So they're languishing in life. So the less of an urgency, I think, that has given people false reassurances, thinking that thalassemia is less important. I think that's one. Second of all is the training in hematology. Residency still lays great emphasis on malignant hematology, and so the amount of time and space that's devoted to training someone to become competent in managing people with blood disorders is much lower. And then, of course, in that sense, then if we're not devoting time to train people in blood disorders, and ergo, there'll be less people coming out to become faculty members for non-malignant blood disorders. And ergo, you're going to have less people following the footsteps because you have less mentorship availability.
1: So what can we do to change that?
2: I think there's been a lot of changes recently, right? Driven by a couple of factors. One is the recognition by community-based organizations, by NGOs, by governments, and by professional organizations that blood disorders like thalassemia are also quite devastating. And that just because patients are living, it doesn't mean that they're not suffering. Just because patients are getting their transfusions and chelation, it doesn't mean that they're well. I think it's busting that myth, right? That's what's important. So we know, for example, American Society of Hematology has put a lot of great emphasis on blood disorders like thalassemias, for example. Certainly, Cooley's Anemia Foundation has done a lot of work. The TIF, for example, right? Thalassemia International Federation, as well as all the other national organizations have really been given a push. The European Medical Association, for example, as well, have led efforts in increasing recognition of thalassemia and providing education to the broader community.
1: It is at least hopeful that we're on an incline here, right? We are creating awareness and Mm -hmm. with that, hopefully, we will gain more specialists and physicians. I think another
2: reason why we're gaining increasing recognition is because with better understanding of the mechanism of the disease, we're beginning to find targets, treatment targets where we can actually modify the disease instead of just giving transfusions and iron to band-aid the symptoms.
1: That kind of brings me to my next question, which is over the past several decades, we've really seen an incline and so much progress with how we can treat thalassemia and, and help patients. So what is your hope for the next coming decades? And what do you want to see? What's your wish for patients in the hopefully near future?
2: It's quite a journey, isn't it? If you think about what we have been through in the sense that you growing up, seeing the changes in the way we manage thalassemia and me learning about how we initially managed thalassemia and now changing the paradigm of how we manage thalassemia as a result of having these new therapies. I felt as if we were going through a tunnel and suddenly there's just this bright light. And sometimes I feel like the light is so bright that I'm blinded, right? You have rays shining. These rays are essentially treatment options shining upon you such that you almost, you feel almost blinded by it. But I feel like in terms of, I think we can divide it into and prevention and then treatment and then ultimately perhaps cure. So if we start with diagnosis and prevention, our increased recognition of what constitutes a clinically significant thalassemic syndrome, particularly in the community, raising awareness like what we're doing right now with ThalPals, for example, uh, making not just patients, but also care providers realize that this is an important disease, I think, will increase our ability to diagnose our patients. Even five to 10 years ago, I received many patients from the community that have horrendous complications, extramedullary hematopoiesis pushing upon the spine leading to paralysis, having pulmonary hemorrhage as a result of these EMHs, having massive splenomegaly that is in controlled, having strokes, having leg ulcers, and so forth. I'm seeing less and less of that because I feel like the patients are presenting much earlier to me, which is a great sign that there is increased recognition of the thalassemic syndrome. So that's one. Second, of course, is with the increased recognition means that people are being counseled about their carrier status, about the possibility that they may have children with thalassemia and ergo, they can make informed choices. Then outside of diagnosis and prevention, of course, is treatment options, right? I feel that when in the past decade, with our increased understanding of the two prime mechanisms of thalassemia, the so-called ineffective arthropoiesis, which is essentially the inability of the bone marrow to make red cells, and also the hemolysis aspect where the red cell health is so poor that they will die prematurely you know, leading to the whole bunch of complications that people with Thalassemia experience. Our understanding of these two mechanisms now have led to increased treatment options. Some of what you know, of course, is approved. And then last but not least is exploiting those mechanisms, right? And trying to gun for a cure like gene therapy, for example, and there is now a whole host of ways for us to do gene therapy. But my real hope is not so much the technology, but the fact that the treatments are becoming more accessible, because it doesn't really matter what fancy treatments you have. If the treatments are only accessible by a very small proportion of the population, then you might as well not have that treatment because majority of the patients will never get gain access to it. So whether you have that treatment or not is irrelevant. And seeing what many countries are now doing, like in Brazil, for example, recently I was in Brazil, seeing the local organization called Abrasta, for example, advocating for their patients, seeing what a lot of the European organizations have been doing in partnership with the European EC community agencies, and seeing what, I just came back from Saudi Arabia, seeing what Saudi Arabia is doing as well, with increasing accessibility to treatments. That gives me hope that more and more patients will now have access to treatments that they deserve, that they need. And I think that is ultimately what will help patients with thalassemia.
1: I could not agree more. Access is the key word when it comes to helping patients. As you just mentioned, you have a patient moving to a state with zero access to hematologists and treatments. That's absurd to me. Like, how is it 2024 and and we have such vast areas that are not being treated and our holes and where we might have patients that really need it. I completely agree that we have incredible technologies. I have full confidence that those technologies will progress to lengths that we don't even know right now. And I'm really excited about that. But the real importance there is access.
2: Yeah. And I also firmly believe, Nina Maria, that with increasing options will bring increased access
1: so something I've been really interested in asking you is as a patient, we obviously know our own struggles and kind of conflicts when it comes to navigating and treating our disease. But from a doctor's perspective, what are your biggest challenges? What are the challenges that we don't see as patients that might help us better understand how you guys work or make decisions or
2: anything like that? Ooh, I think it's time. I think time is my biggest enemy or the lack of time. You have no idea, Nina Maria. I, I just wish I have an infinite amount of time to spend with my patients because I feel like the more time I spend with my patients, the better I get to understand their motivations to accept treatment and not accept treatment. There is a big thing that they teach in medical school in that Mr. So-and-so, is not inherent to their treatment. And if they're not inherent, the knee jerk reflex is, you have to educate them about their side effects, about the risk of not taking the treatment. And then you gotta educate them the benefits of getting the treatment. And then I think to myself, what a load of crock, right? Here, you're dealing with a population where patients like you, for example, diagnosed at six months, you know about your disease way better than anyone in the room right now, including the doctors. So why would anyone have the gumption to think that they know better about what is good for you versus what is not? And often when we really take the time to dig deep down into why someone is not taking the treatment or is taking the treatment less, has nothing to do with their understanding of dangers of not taking the treatment or the benefits of taking the treatment. They know all that. What it is this life, right? Ultimately, as doctors, what we want to do is being able to provide treatments to you so that it liberates you from your disease, so that you don't live for your disease. That is a danger, I think, with a lot of chronic diseases, that people live to treat the disease. And that is not somewhere where we want our patients to end up. And so the way to understand that and the way to manage that is to understand the motivations behind taking a treatment or not taking a treatment. And that takes time. And most of the time has to do with, say, going to school or not having accessible transportation options or not having the copay necessary to get the drug, right? These are stuff that have zero, nothing to do with the patient's understanding, And so that's why I think time is my biggest enemy. That plus paperwork. I want to jab my eyes over paperwork. I'm telling you, you know, like fighting with insurance companies and explaining why you need dual chelation treatment, not you. Patients need dual chelation treatment and so forth. It's just shoot myself in the brain some days. But that's what it takes (laughs) to get it done.
1: (laughs) Well, it's certainly hard work and we do recognize that. But I really loved what you had to say about the other factors that impact patients that are outside of a scientific or health realm that we might think of, right? And it just feels good to hear that doctors are considering that, right? I think there are times when they might not be, but it's such a huge factor in healthcare is the other outside life impacts that might be getting in the way.
2: I think it also speaks to the inadequacies of our current treatment, right? Because if the treatment is truly a good treatment, it should not have any impact on one's life choices at all. The fact that you have to modify your lifestyle, your life choices in order to fit the treatment means that treatment is still not perfect. And this is why we need research. It's so that we can find treatments that can fit your lifestyle that can seamlessly weave into your life such that you won't be bothered by it.
1: I think doctors and patients alike, that's what we're searching for. That's what we want, right? So what is one thing that you wish patients better understood about thalassemia?
2: As I said before, I, f- I feel like they understand about it so much that it's not incumbent upon me to tell them what they should or should not know. Here's one thing, eh? I think is the very long-term consequences of having thalassebius. So many complications are so insidious that you initially do not feel that, like, cardiac iron overload, right? You don't feel it until it gets too severe to a point where one would have heart failure with shortness of breath and chest pain and palpitations and so forth. And then by that time, it's just so hard to treat. And I understand that taking something like chelation, which is a preventative medication, is often more difficult than say taking a drug that can treat or cure a particular disease. For example, if you have a bacterial infection, you need to take penicillin, right? And you get better with the penicillin, you feel the effect of getting better. You feel that your pneumonia is getting better, right? So obviously that's a motivation for you to take, but just looking at abstract numbers like T2 star, for example, or your LIC doesn't really mean a heck lot because you're not feeling the effects yourself unless it gets too late. I think having that long-term insight was helpful, but it doesn't solve everything. But again, because you see, life just takes over a lot of times. right? It takes over what we do. And we just have to be human enough to recognize that will always be the case. No one can ever be perfect with their treatment. And it's okay not to be perfect.
1: It feels good to hear that too, because I think as a patient, it can sometimes feel like a lot of pressure. Make sure you take these medicines at this time and make sure you get this checked and this test. And so it can be overwhelming. It could be a lot. But like you said, I think just giving yourself grace, but also be on top of it as you can and really understand the importance of preventative procedures
2: and to understand that as doctors we are not here to judge you when we grab you bring you into the exam room we're not there to give you a quiz we're not there to give you a test we're not there to pronounce judgment we are not the executioner here we just want to understand where you are with regards to your treatment so that we can modify it if it's necessary if it's not necessary fine go ahead keep going keep doing what you're doing and you know what a lot of times I really don't care much about how people get to where they are as long as they can get there yeah, if it takes you to do somersaults in order to get to an LIC of less than three, go for it.
1: And before we do close things out, you did mention you had traveled to Saudi Arabia, also Brazil recently. Are there any exciting or anything that you want to tell us that you've learned through any of those experiences?
2: You know what? If you want to learn about what I learned in Saudi Arabia, as we will be bringing a very special guest from Saudi Arabia. And for the listeners out there, you just have to wait and see.
1: I love it. I think that just about wraps up this episode. Dr. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing and bringing some insight from a doctor's perspective. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. Make sure you join us next time and don't forget to share with your Thrill Pals out there.
2: Thank you, Anna Maria, for letting me share my stories with you.
1: Absolutely, it was a great time.